Today, what I want to uh, talk about um, is compelled by love, which is something Paul Denny alluded to um, last week. So, um, yeah, I'm encouraged by what God's already said, so um, let's see where we go. Um, I've I've titled my uh, talk this, this phrase you'll see is in the passage that we're going to read today, Um, but this word compelled um, has kind of come to my attention recently um, in quite a random way that I'm just going to share with you. Um, So as a school teacher, um, I I like to think of myself as somebody that um, is quite good at using words and sort of playing about with them, using them for purpose. Um, I love reading, and I have been known uh, to read the dictionary for fun. <laughs> Ask my housemate that. Like yeah, learning new words. Um, so I enjoy stumbling across um, one of these online articles that are there designed to distract you from what you actually went online to do. Um, and it, it was entitled, uh, Ten Words That Don't Mean What You Think They Mean. So you can imagine I smugly rose to the challenge thinking, okay, I'm going to enjoy this, looking at these words and checking that, yes, I do indeed know what they mean. But I have to say um, that I had to swallow my pride because there were some words I had indeed been using incorrectly for most of my life. So I'm just going to just share a few with you. Um, The first one is disinterested. So the way that this uh, article was set out, it kind of said, this is what you may think it means. So disinterested, what you may think it means, not interested. Um, And that was actually the way I had been using it. So, for example, um, uh, he he was disinterested in the football result. But actually what it means is neutral or unbiased. So quite different. Um, The next one, and this is one that I use all of the time, apparently incorrectly, is the word peruse. So it says what you may think it means is to skim or to glance over something. So I might say, um, oh, I enjoy perusing the IKEA Mm catalogue. What it actually means um, is to review something in depth or carefully. So quite different. And then the third word, here's this word, compelled. So this word was in this article. So what you may think it means to willingly do something, to feel like you should do something, to be moved to do something. So people have talked this week about um, being feeling compelled to help the Manchester Dogs home, for example. But actually, what it means is to be forced to do something. And this really struck me, particularly when I related it to the passage that we're going to read today. Because in the passage, the Bible says, for Christ's love compels us. And we'll read it in a moment. But I just want to linger on that word, just for a sec. The love of Christ compels us, forces us. Some translations say controls us. Just think for a moment what that might look like, to be controlled by Christ's love. And for what reason? What are we compelled to do or to be? So with those questions in mind, let's have a look at the passage. So um, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And the section starts at verse 11, but we're going to read uh, just from verse 10 to get a bit of context. So 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. 
We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your words. Lord, we thank you for just the riches that are contained in these particular verses. And God, we ask that you would help us to fix our hearts and minds and our eyes on you, Jesus. That, Lord, as we look through this passage, you would uh, be specific with us. You'd make it personal. And, God, that you would speak to each one of us for your glory. Amen. Amen. Great. Okay, so verse 14, central to the passage. I've said it a lot already. Christ's love compels us. It's not that we feel like we probably should do something in response to God's love. No, it controls us because we are convinced that one died for all. We can't help but be changed, motivated, directed by the love of Christ. It says the old has gone. All who have received Christ have died to sin and self. That is not what controls us anymore. So, how does this happen? How on earth does God make this change in us so that we are compelled above all else by the love of Christ? Well, today, Paul gives us three indications in this passage. Building blocks, if you like, for what it looks like to live a life compelled, controlled by the love of Christ. Firstly, our motivation is changed. God changes us from the inside out. Verse 15 says, Those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. 
Secondly, our identity is realised. In verses 16 and 17, it talks about how we regard one another as we truly are, new creations made alive in Christ. And thirdly, our purpose is clear. We've been given a job to do. Verse 20, we are called to be ambassadors of Christ, having been given the ministry of reconciliation. So we're going to look at each of these things in turn. Firstly, though, let's just remember where Paul, who's writing this, is coming from. Remember, he's already sent the church at Corinth one letter in which he'd had the rather difficult task of disciplining them. And in this letter, Paul goes on to describe his ministry and the relationship actually between suffering and the power of the Spirit in his life and message. He urges the Corinthian Christians that even under great pressure, they share the victory of Christ and carry the responsibility of making him known in all circumstances and all situations. At the beginning of chapter 5, Paul encourages the Corinthians to live with their eyes on the horizon, to have an eternal perspective. He encourages them in verse 7 to live by faith, not by sight. That even though he's writing this letter facing many pressures, he could say in verse 6, we are confident. He knows his future is secure. He waits for the day when he will finally be home with the Lord. But rather than sitting tight, waiting passively, he demonstrates how this certain hope of heaven feeds into the present realities of living for Christ. Knowing our future is certain has massive implications for life here and now. And that's the place that the passage we've read today begins. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. In light of the rather sober theme of future judgment that we read in verse 10, Paul starts this section actually showing us fear of the Lord is an appropriate response. Not a cringing fear, but a sense of awe, a sense of responsibility to our judge, to whom one day we'll give an account. And we have reason, therefore, to live our lives as good stewards, and in particular, to be driven to persuade others, in verse 11, of their need for King Jesus. And Paul is clear about what should be motivating us in this aim. So let's have a look at the first building block. Those whose lives are controlled by the love of Christ have had their entire life motivation changed. Now, all of the things that we're looking at today are things God does in us. So this is a heart thing, not something we do. Our motivation flows out of who we are as children of God. When we hear the words control, we can maybe think of robots or puppet masters. But I pray that we'll see, because Christ's love is in us, running through us, we can't help but be changed from the inside out. So that our motivation for living is no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us, written into our very DNA as those whose lives are hidden with Christ in God. And Paul is very clear about this. He stresses in verse 11 and 12 how everything is out in the open. He can't help it. He is controlled by something so much greater than himself. His motives are clear. He reminds the Corinthian Christians that what we are is plain to God. He isn't trying to win approval by pretending
pretending he's something that he's not. Just as one day he will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, so now his life is transparent. It's open for all to read. And actually he anticipates those who might take pride in the external things, the things that are seen rather than the things that are in the heart. Those that would look to an outward display, maybe of macho heroics or eloquence of speech. I was so encouraged by what Paul Denny spoke to us about last week, about shifting the rock of self-reliance from our heart in order to allow the spirit to flow freely through us. And Paul reminded us how culturally we're trained, if you like, for self-reliance, to have it all together, to not ask for help, and how actually this can affect the way that we relate to God and to one another, relying on the externals rather than being real and honest about what is in the heart. Recently, I'd uh, organised for some outside help with our kids' work um, when Julie and and Katia came uh, for the weekends. Um, And unfortunately, the person that I'd lined up to help us with that had to cancel um, on the Saturday morning. And my usual response to this in the natural would be sort of spiralling into worry um, or kind of hurrying into activity and self-reliance. The attitude of, oh, I need to sort this out, or I'll just do it. But actually, God stopped me in my tracks. And he reminded me of an example in Simon Holly's book that Paul uh, referred to, of George Muller, who many of you probably would know, started many orphanages down in the Bristol area. And in one incident, um, Muller came down to breakfast, and he knew he had 300 or so hungry mouths to feed. And he realised there was nothing for breakfast. His first response is to gather the children together to pray, saying, come and see what God will do. Hmm. And God does indeed provide the breakfast in the form of the local baker and milkman. But what strikes me most about this story is Muller's heart attitude. Hmm. Let's see what the father will do. Hmm. When presented with a problem, rather than panicking and relying on himself, And actually, at the weekend I just referred to, I was amazed how quickly Alison and I were able to arrange an alternative for the Julian and Katia weekends and felt just a real shared excitement that actually God was in charge of the change of plans. As we see elsewhere in Scripture, God doesn't look at the outward appearance, the externals, the things we think we can do, but God looks at the heart. And it's the same here. Paul is not boasting, but he's trying to correct the perspective of the Corinthians. Don't take pride in what is seen, he's saying, rather than what is in the heart. A heart that is right with God and seeking his kingdom. A heart that is rested in knowing who it belongs to. That all good things come from the Father. That we are his children to whom we can come so expectantly. A heart that says, let's see what the Father will do. And this kind of transparency is to be nurtured. The place to begin is in God's presence. That is when we can say, what we are is plain to God. I loved what Angela said to us at the weekend away. If you're tired, go on holiday. If you're weary, go to the Lord. It's just so powerful. What we are is plain to God. Why do we find to try and find our rest in other places? After all Paul has written so far then, the Corinthian Christians 
must have got the message that his ministry to them was motivated by a deep concern for their well-being. Not only does he help them in verse 12 to respond to the critics, those who would look to the outward appearance, but also he explains that his attitudes and behaviour have been shaped by his desire to serve them and bring glory to God. Verse 13, he says, If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, commentators are a little bit hazy about what Paul is getting at here, the thing about being in our right mind. But there is the sense that perhaps some people were suggesting that Paul was going a bit crazy. All that hard work and personal suffering, lunacy, he's out of his mind. But Paul insists it's a matter for God alone to judge. Every aspect of his life, even if judged by others to be extreme, was motivated by his deep desire to serve the Lord and his people. And so, in verses 14 to 15, Paul underlines the fundamental motivation of his life. J.B. Phillips paraphrases these verses as, the very spring of our actions is the love of Christ. It is Christ's love that pushes him forward in his service. Paul is saying that if Christ died for me, the only right response is to give give everything to him. As we grasp this truth, the motivation of our hearts gets transformed. So we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who gave us everything. Jesus' self-giving on the cross was the compelling force in Paul's life, turning him away from self-centred living. Our actions, too, are to be shaped by a concern for God's glory and the outbreak of his kingdom, rather than self-interest or the external displays of personal gain. Those whose lives are motivated, compelled by the love of Christ, are secure in their identity. They can confidently answer the question that God's been asking us lately. Do you know who you are? And so this leads us to the second building block of living a life compelled by the love of Christ. Our identity is realised. We need a daily revelation of our identity, don't we? To realise what we already have. It's the best kept secret the enemy doesn't want us to know. If the enemy can trick us into orphan-hearted thinking, then we can allow self-reliance and personal gain to be our motivation instead of the love of Christ. And this can confuse us in our identity as children of God, relying on our own limited resources rather than producing fruit from the abiding life that is connected to the Father. And the danger of becoming reliant on external successes and look what I'm capable of is that we start to measure our worth by it. And so we can become success-driven, motivated by pride or achievement, rather than being controlled, compelled by the love of Christ. Paul tells us in verse 17 that to be controlled by the love of Christ means that we have been given the identity of new creations. We don't regard each other from a worldly point of view. We don't look at external displays of what we consider to be success. We see people differently. We refuse to judge people by the world's yardstick or the prejudices of our own culture. Instead, we see each other as someone for whom Christ died. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
Remember, the Bible tells us that before we were in Christ, we were spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. Literally, we were as unresponsive to God as a corpse. But, as Colossians 2 verse 13 tells us, God did not leave us in that state. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. The new creation has come. And to be a new creation means God creates something out of nothing. It's not just another go or another chance. It's something entirely new, newly created, something that wasn't there before. It's life where before there was no life. I have a couple of good friends who uh, live up in Wigan. And uh, recently, in, in August, they had baby number three. Um, little baby Vincent, who's very sweet. And uh, when my friend Will rang me to say, we've had the baby, um, he was all a little bit flustered because actually it happened extremely quickly, being number three. Um, And as proof, he proceeded to tell me that um, when he parked the car in the hospital and got the ticket, the time on the ticket was 9.13. The baby was born at 9.46 in triage. So when Will got that pay and display ticket, there was no baby. The car seat was empty. There was only Anna, his wife, to get to the hospital. The next time they got in the car, there was a baby. The empty baby seat now had a new creation in it, something that wasn't there before. Our identity as new creations means a radical change of allegiance. The old has gone. The new has come. Reconciliation with God means our old way of life is to be put to death and our new life in Christ is the dominant characteristic, the driving force, the compelling force of all that we are and all that we do. And new creations have an appetite for righteousness. Verse 21 is often described as the great exchange. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have become the righteousness of God. It is part of our identity, of who we are. So when condemnation comes and shame seeks to cover us, there is only one place to go. Let's read the rest of Colossians 2 verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So, those things that condemn, they are not part of your identity. They're nailed to the cross. When we were dead, unresponsive, Christ did that. So all past, present and future sin is nailed there. Knowing who we are, a new creation, made alive in Christ, no longer dead in sin, we don't look to the external things that dictate our identity and our value. 
And so as new creations, with the old way of life put to death, the new life in Christ dominates, compels, controls us. Having been reconciled, we have this new calling, ministers of reconciliation, as verse 18 says. Our purpose is clear. And this is the third and final building block to living a life compelled by the love of Christ. Paul uses this bold illustration of the ambassador, the king's envoy. Verse 20 tells us that we are speaking on behalf of God. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. When I was at uni, um, in my first year, I lived on a corridor in my halls of residence with a girl um, who was actually the daughter of a Swedish diplomat. Now, I didn't really know her well, and she kind of kept her background under wraps, but I did know that her dad's role was to represent his country here in the UK. So an ambassador is a diplomat sent by state or government as its permanent representative in a foreign country. An ambassador carries the influence of his country far beyond its borders. My friend's dad had all the influence, weight, power and authority of Sweden, even when on foreign territory. Philippians 3 tells us our citizenship is in heaven. We are representatives of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. God's kingdom goes with us. And so the ministry of reconciliation is founded on the fact that we are sent by the king with all the influence, weight, power and authority of Christ. Verse 20 continues with the word implore. The appeal we make to others to be reconciled to God is not detached from people but with a sense of urgency and passion. We may be ambassadors, but we do not stand on ceremony. We meet people in their need. We show them what it means to be alive, to be a new creation, and to live with a certain hope of heaven. The ministry of reconciliation, then, has both authority and urgency. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Since Christ died for all, our task is to take the good news to a world broken by sin, to allow the Spirit to reveal through us that God is not reluctant. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. Now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. This is it. We don't have to wait. There are divine appointments all around us, ready for us to partner with God in. I've always found a helpful definition of what the Bible means when referring to the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign over his people. So when we choose to seek first his kingdom or when we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we are pursuing Christ's rule and reign, his lordship in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And God takes us seriously. His kingdom is breaking out. When we see people turn to Christ, walk from death to life, become new creations, that's kingdom advancement. When we see joy and peace released in lives, that's kingdom outbreak. When we experience the presence of God or see people healed or set free, that's kingdom invasion. As ambassadors of the king, we are carriers of this kingdom. We can be the answer to our own prayer of seeing the kingdom of God break out. 
I can be the answer to my prayer of, Lord, your kingdom come. All it takes is a bit of intention on our part to cultivate a lifestyle that is ready at any moment for God to break in. In Matthew 4, Jesus models this to us. It says in verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. All it requires is for our eyes to be open to what God is already doing, looking beyond ourselves, asking, how can I demonstrate God's love and compassion to those that don't yet know him? I remember hearing somebody say once that it is actually compassion that we need in those situations, but so often we pray for boldness, don't we, or courage. But actually, it's compassion, not courage, that makes us step out. When God breaks our heart for someone in need of a touch from the king. Again, Jesus shows us this so beautifully. Matthew 9:36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed like sheep without a shepherd. For us, that compassion comes from being compelled by Christ's love. That is what motivates us, what drives us. He died that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him, his kingdom, his rule and reign. That's our priority now. So, as we finish, what does it look like to be compelled by the love of Christ? What has God done in us? Well, he's changed our entire motivation for life. We live each day knowing that if Christ died for us, the only right response is to give everything for him. As we grasp this truth, the motivation of our hearts is transformed. So we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who gave us everything. A heart compelled by the love of Christ knows and rests in its identity. As new creations, the old has gone, the new is here. It's a heart that is right with God and seeking his kingdom, his rule, his reign. A heart that is reliant on God, that says, let's see what the Father will do.